We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, we have been in a series called Back to the Basics, where we've been examining some of the fundamental questions of our faith. So we've been looking at things like, what is Christianity anyways? What's it all about? Uh, and, And last week, we looked at, what is the church? And we noted how the church is the people of God. It's not a building. It's not, uh, it's not a number of different things, but it is the, the people that God has called to himself and redeemed by his grace. It is those of us who place our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. So we noted how even Peter and Paul talk about how Jesus, as the cornerstone of his church, is building his church with people. As he calls people to himself, he's building a spiritual house or a temple for God. We are that temple where God's presence dwells. And so the people of God are the church. And so the question we come to this week is, what should the church be all about? What is the church's mission? And so we've been looking at these fundamental questions because fundamentals have to do with with everything important in life. And so when you think about your business, you you have to understand the fundamentals of business if you want to succeed in the business world. If you want your business to grow, if you want to expand to multiple locations, if you want to bring in the kind of revenue that your business needs and pay your employees well, you need to understand the fundamental principles of the business world. If you want to succeed in, in sports or in school, it's the same thing. You've got to understand some fundamentals that shape everything else that you do. In our relationships, if we want to have healthy homes, marriages, and friendships, then we have to understand the fundamentals of a healthy relationship. And it's the same thing for the church of Jesus Christ. If we want to have healthy churches and we want to be churches that impact the world for God's kingdom as we serve Jesus together, then we have to understand fundamental questions like what is the church and what is its mission? So this week, we're going to ask the Bible and Jesus what, what he has to say about his church's mission. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to begin turning there with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, we're going to look at the question, what is the church's mission? Jesus, at this point, has uh, been raised from the dead, and he has uh, revealed himself to his disciples after dying and then spending three days in a tomb, and he was resurrected, and now he's going to give them his parting words. And so, I don't know if you've ever thought about the last thing that you would say to a close friend or a loved one before you departed from them, what you would say in those moments, but, but these are the words that Jesus leaves with his followers, leaves with his disciples. This is what he wants them to be about. This is what he wants their lives to be all about. And so, Matthew chapter 28, we're going to read it, and then we'll look at what is the church's mission from this passage. Starting in verse 16, here's what we read. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the commission that Jesus gives his disciples to make disciples. This is what Jesus says his church is to be all about. And so the first thing that we need to ask, though, is is who is it that is giving the church its mission? And and you might say, well, well, Pastor Grant, it's pretty easy to see. It was Jesus right there. But, But what I want you to understand is who Jesus is, who this Jesus is that is giving this mission to us as his people. King Jesus gives the church its mission by his own authority. And so you'll notice in verse 16 that Jesus has directed his disciples, his followers, to a mountain where he's going to meet with them. And so if we think about mountains in Scripture, what do we often find? If we think back to the Old Testament, what we see is that Moses met with God on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and there God spoke to Moses and spoke to his people and gave them his words, his directions. And so in Scripture, mountains are oftentimes this place where God meets with his people and he speaks to them. He he tells them what it is he would have them to do. And it's the same here with Jesus in, in Matthew 28 when he meets with his disciples on the mountaintop. He tells them his commands. He tells them what it is that he would have them to be about. What it is that he would have them to do. And so Jesus reveals himself not just as a man in the scriptures, but he reveals himself to be God, very God. He is God himself who has revealed himself to his people and has called them to be about his words, his commands. And, and the command he gives here, like we're going to see, is, is that they would be about making disciples. But, but Jesus shows up on a mountain just like God did with Moses and Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And then we also read that it says he had all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, and before we get to talking about that, that idea of all authority and what Jesus is meaning here, I want you to notice what comes right before this. Because there's this really encouraging part of this passage for us who struggle to believe. In verse 17, look what it says. It says, and when they saw him, talking about Jesus' disciples, those, those who had followed him, those who knew him best, they were closest with him. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Have you ever struggled with doubt? Have you ever had questions about your faith? Maybe you've been in a spot in life where, where, where faith was not easy for you. Maybe you've been in a spot where, where you, know, you, you remember things that God has done in the past, but in the present, you're going through the thick of it, and, and you're just not sure that what you saw back there was real and true. Because right now, life's hard. Maybe you just got a diagnosis that you weren't expecting, and you find it hard to believe that God is good and present. Maybe you are haunted by 
abuse and suffering from your past or, or the abuse and suffering that you've seen your loved ones walk through and, and you're just not sure that this idea that there's this God who is present and, and cares about his people, sometimes you, you struggle to believe that. Maybe right now you're, you're in a difficult battle with sin that has plagued your life for decades, and, and no matter how hard you try to fight against it, you just can't seem to shake it. And you begin to doubt if, if you're even a believer, if, if you even know this, this Jesus, because when you look around you, you see people who seem to have it all figured out. They seem to have their act together. And sure, you can put on a face when you're around certain people, but, but then when it's just you and God, you know that there's some things that you've not been able to deal with. And you wonder, is this all real? And you experience a struggle with, with doubt and with faith. Well, I think the, the reason this passage is so encouraging to us who struggle is because these are the men who knew Jesus best. For three years, they walked with him, they ate with him, they prayed with him, they slept in the same places, and, and they, they traveled together. They were together all the time. They knew Jesus better than anybody and then when Jesus has, has died, you, you can imagine this moment where, where the one you've been following and placing your hope in and your trust in has just died, and you're beginning to think, was it ever real? Was I placing my hope somewhere that it shouldn't have been? And, and for those three days where, when Jesus was dead and in the tomb, you can imagine the kinds of questions they might have had and the things they would have been wrestling with. And then when, 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 when two of the women come to them and, and, and they're, they're shouting, Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's not there anymore. The tomb's empty. You can imagine the disciples in those moments might have been thinking, yeah, right. That can't be true. We saw him die. He bled out in front of us. And then Jesus, over a period of what we think was probably 40 days or so, began to reveal himself to his people once again as alive, present, risen from the grave. And he shows himself to his disciples not long after they had just heard that he was risen. And, 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 and in those moments, you know, we read about, about Thomas, who, who is known to be the doubter, right? We say doubting Thomas, right? You're, you're a doubting Thomas when you struggle with doubt. And, and Thomas, he, he has to reach out and he has to touch Jesus to know that it's real, that it's really him, that he's alive again. And we think Thomas is the only one who struggled with doubt, which is just not true. Because here we see that they worshiped Jesus, the risen Lord. He was in front of them, speaking to them, and they're worshiping him. And it says, but some doubted. It doesn't say, but just Thomas doubted. It says, but some doubted. Friends, the people closest to Jesus who knew him best struggled with doubt. 
And so maybe you've been wrestling lately. Maybe you've been struggling with doubt. I get, I get emails and questions and people talking to me all the time about, about their struggles with doubt, and, and they wonder, does the fact that I have questions make me unrighteous? Does the fact that I struggle to believe and that I, I still have doubts, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does it mean I'm in sin? Friends, here's the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection are sufficient for you, for your past sins, for your present sins, for the ways in the future in which you will struggle with sin, no doubt, until glory. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all of it. And that includes your doubts. You see, you see, the good news of the gospel is, is not that you, you need to just believe and never have a doubt or a question ever again in your whole life. Otherwise, it doesn't count. That's not what we read in Scripture. What we read in Scripture is we are called to believe and to follow this risen Lord Jesus. And part of that, following after him in a broken world in which we are still being redeemed and made new by our King and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is that we will struggle with questions. We will struggle with doubts. Just like the disciples did, when we see God do something miraculous, we will fight for faith and struggle with doubt. If, you know, sometimes we think if Jesus would just show himself to me, if he would just stand in front of me and say, I'm real, then that would eliminate it all for us. But here's the thing, for those who knew Jesus best, it didn't. They still struggled with doubts about God and this Jesus they were following. But Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of our sins, even those moments in life when we struggle to trust God and we fight for faith and we struggle with doubt. And so I, I hope you're encouraged by, by seeing the disciples as they experience this. And then as we get to, to this moment where Jesus begins to give his commission, he says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so Jesus is telling us something about himself here. When he says all authority, we need to think about how authority belongs to kings. It belongs to rulers. It belongs to those who rule over a kingdom. It, Jesus says he has all authority in all of the universe, both heaven and earth. And as we think about Jesus saying, I've got all the authority in heaven and on earth, we ought to think back to Genesis chapter 1 and who made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was God who held authority over all the universe, over all creation. And so for Jesus to stand here in front of his disciples, in front of his followers, and to say, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, is to say that he's, he's much more than just a man is to say that he is the God who made all things, and he is the God who made all things, who has come to redeem all things.
And so this Jesus, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, which should give us as his people great comfort and encouragement as we read what he commands us to do here in just a moment. Because if he has all authority, then it means that as the church considers its mission, we are serving one who is actually in control who actually has the power to do what he said he was going to do, who's actually able to accomplish this mission. Can you think about all the times in life where you've set out to do something and failed? And maybe you started a business and and you worked really hard on your mission statement and and you got everything together and and ready to go. And then, you know, month after month, you know, the income was just not meeting the expenses and the thing tanked. Or maybe you've got a, you know, a relationship in your past where you, you sought out to, to do everything that you could do to make this thing healthy and it, and it fell apart. You see, so often in life, we, we don't have the power to do the things that we set out to do. But Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, which means he has the power to accomplish his mission. And he does it through his people. And so Jesus has all authority. When, when we think about this idea of authority, you know, uh, the other day I, I posted on Facebook and I, and I said, what's, what's your favorite show of all time? And, and what's your favorite show right now? And, and I think I got more responses on that post than anything I've ever posted. Because everybody has a favorite show, Right? And, and, and we've got this issue in our culture where, you know, most of us spend most of our time binge-watching shows, okay? It's just, it's just how Netflix works and streaming services, and so we spend a lot of time watching shows on repeat, you know? And, and, and one of the things that I've noticed as, as I've watched several different shows and as I've struggled with binge-watching things way too much, like many of you probably, is I, I, I've noticed how how our culture has begun to talk about the universe and authority. And so there, there seems to be this idea in a lot of our shows that, that the universe is actually almost this kind of personal being or entity that has all power and authority and that is ultimately responsible for your destiny. And so, you know, I think about one of my favorite shows, Mar- Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So you all know I love superhero shows and all the Marvel stuff. And, and on this one show that they have, there's this couple uh, and named Fitz and Simmons. And, and they're this really nerdy couple. They're real intelligent. And, and, and throughout the show, they have this romance. And, and they begin to believe at several points that the universe doesn't want them to be together that the universe is keeping them apart. And, and throughout the show, you kind of see why they would think this, because a lot of times they're on opposite ends of space, of the universe. And, and, and they say the universe just doesn't want us together. It's against the universe's will, as though the universe has all authority and is able to determine what happens. Friends, we've begun to replace this idea of God with a God of our own construction. We've, been, we've thrown out the idea of a personal God who, who claims to be good and in control, and we've replaced it with a somewhat personal universe that is sometimes good and is ultimately responsible for everything that happens. 
Friends, Jesus' claim is that the universe has no authority because he has all authority in the universe. And so if you want a place to place your hope, you don't place it in a created thing like the universe. As vast as it is, it holds no actual power because there was someone who made it. And this is the significance of Jesus saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And from this place, from this God, he gives us a mission. And here's what he says. So this is who gives us the mission. So what is the church's mission? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and listen to this, and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission of the church, to make disciples. Jesus' mission that he gives to his disciples is that they would multiply, that they would make other disciples. And so part of, part of being a disciple is making disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then, then one of the questions that we must ask ourselves, Christians, is, is there anyone that we can point to and say, they're following Jesus today because I was following Jesus and I made a disciple and I pointed somebody to him and I, and I obeyed this mission, this commission that Jesus gave his people. The mission is, is to make disciples. So, so what is a, a disciple? Well, a disciple was a follower. So they, they were someone who would leave almost everything to follow after a master teacher, a rabbi. They, they would follow this man, and, and this man would teach them the ways of God or, or the ways of life, and, and he would give them his wisdom, and then they would repeat that process where they would teach and train others. And so disciples were those who, who left everything, turning away from it all, and, and sought to follow after someone who could teach them. And so, so they're turning away from everything that they know to follow a, a new master, someone who's able to direct them. So, so to make disciples, friends, is to call people to turn from everyone and everything else that they've been hoping in, trusting in, relying upon, and to say, follow this master, follow this Jesus, and he'll teach you the way of life. Jesus claims himself to be the way, the, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him and that we can find truth and life in the person of Jesus as we turn from all other pursuits and follow after him. And so the church's mission is to make disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. That's the simplest way for us to put it. Is the church is to be about making disciples who then make other disciples. But, but as we think about the, the mission of God and, and we think about our world, when we look around us, we see some concerning things. So, so I've, I've been reading this, this new book called Something Needs to Change by David Platt. Uh, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C. He used to be the president of our International Mission Board for a few, for a few years. And, and as he writes 
this book, he's writing a, a week-long account of his time in the Himalayan mountains in Asia. And, and so as he's going through the Himalayas with this group of three or four other guys, they're, they're hiking through the mountains, and, and he's seeing some things that begin to, to rock his world. The, the first day, he, he, the first man that he meets in the mountains is a man whose eyeball just fell out of his head due to infection in the last week. And he can't believe what he's seeing. Because as he, he looks at this man's face, he sees things inside his head that he should not see. And he's never seen anything like that before. And then they go on to the next village and... There's dozens of families who have sold their daughters of varying ages into slavery just to make it by. And he thinks about his own children back home, who some of them are similar ages to these little girls. And he, and he weeps, and he, he, he can't imagine this kind of environment and what's happened here. And they go on, and, and as he gets to the next village, he, he meets this family that is struggling with extreme poverty and, and is offering incense and things up to Buddha, believing that if they just do enough good, that in their next life, they'll have a better time. And they go on, and as they're, as they're traveling further, they see these funeral pyres where, where bodies are just kind of lifted up and burned, and, and, and people are, are hoping in these false gods that have no power to save or give hope. And he thinks about those who in the villages will, in a couple days, probably be the bodies that are lifted up like that. And then they move on to another village, and, and he meets this little girl who, as he looks at her, he can see how difficult her life has been, just from her appearance. He can see that she's malnourished. He can, he can see that she regularly doesn't eat. And he knows that in his backpack... He's got snacks. He's got, he's got, he's got bars that he, he's taken for his, his hiking trip up through the mountains. And, and this little girl is walking with him hand in hand and, and essentially looking up to him and just waiting and smiling and trying to please him and, and begging him to give her something. And he knows that he was told by, by their trip leader that if you give something to one of the kids, it's going to end up not being helpful for the rest of them. And and it's not going to be a helpful situation. And so he's, he's fighting this battle. Like He sees this little girl in need, and, and he has something that can help immediately. But he's been told not to give it to her. And as they leave her village, she realizes she's not going to get anything from this man, and, and she rips her arm away, and then she spits at him. But she can't actually get spit out to spit at him because she's so dehydrated. And as he was walking through the Himalayas, seeing this kind of devastation and thinking about the mission of the church, he thought, how do we reconcile this? Because we say the mission is to make disciples. 
The mission is to preach a message that meets spiritual needs. But whenever we see people who are suffering in these kinds of ways, how do we make sense of this? Is the church just supposed to be about this over here and not this? How do we think about the relationship between missions and evangelism and discipleship and social justice and mercy ministry to those who are in physical need? You see, there tends to be this, this kind of idea that I've noticed in the church in America where the mission that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 28 and the idea of social justice or mercy ministry are almost pitted against each other as though they're contradictory. As though, as though to care about one is to not care about the other. As though you should only care about one and not the other. And, and I see Christians on social media arguing about this all the time, fighting with one another, saying, saying you Christians who care about evangelism and discipleship don't care about the hurting and the needy. And then on this side, we, we see people who care about discipleship and evangelism saying, you people who care about the needy and meeting physical needs don't care about their spiritual needs and their eternity. Friends, this shouldn't be so. Because Jesus didn't think about ministry this way. You see, in Luke chapter 4, here's what we read about Jesus as he begins to preach the gospel, the good news. Here's what we read. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So Jesus is about to teach the scriptures. He's about to read from the scriptures and explain them. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus, after he's read this from the prophet Isaiah, he, he sits down and he looks at those around him and he says, today in your hearing this has been fulfilled. And so as Jesus, when we read through the Gospels, when we see the way that Jesus does the ministry, he goes throughout the villages and he heals the sick and he cares for the poor and, and he cares for those who are in physical need. But all the while, he's preaching to them good news that is spiritual and has eternal implications. So see, Jesus doesn't, doesn't see this as an either-or thing. He doesn't think that the way ministry should be done is though it's just about eternal spiritual needs and ignores physical temporary ones. And he doesn't think that ministry should just be about temporary physical needs and ignoring spiritual eternal ones. Instead, Jesus, as he does ministry on the earth and teaches his disciples to follow after him, the example he sets for us is he cares for the physical needs of the hurting, broken, and oppressed. And all the while, he preaches the gospel of good news, that there is salvation, forgiveness, and redemption to be found in him that lasts forever. And so, friends, as we think about the mission of the church, our, our primary task is to make disciples. 
is to call people to turn from sin, to turn from pursuing other things above God, and to follow after Jesus, because in him is our only lasting hope. But that doesn't mean that we don't do ministry to physical needs. That doesn't mean that we ignore the abused and the oppressed. It doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor and for the widow and the orphan. These things aren't contradictory to one another. And it makes me so angry when I see Christians fighting with one another on social media and accusing one another of heresy and blasphemy and and all sorts of ridiculous things because somebody cares about this issue over here and they read into that that they don't care about the primary mission of God. That's ridiculous. Now, there are those out there who only care about social justice and mercy ministry, who don't think that we should focus on spiritual needs and eternal needs. And they're wrong. And there are those out there who think we should only focus on spiritual needs and eternal needs and never really worry about the physical temporary needs. And they're wrong. Because in Jesus, if we're disciples of this God-man who has come to reveal himself to us and to pave the way for us, we see someone who ministers to the broken and hurting and who all the while preaches the gospel to them, saying, come to me and be saved. And we ought to do likewise. If we're to obey all that Jesus commanded, you know, in the Old Testament, we, we read this in Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They are one and the same. And so if God has been telling his people for thousands of years to care about justice, to love the oppressed, and to care for them, then that doesn't change in the New Testament church. But Jesus' commission is not contrary to that. We minister to physical needs, and, and, and we help people get to the spot where they can, they can hear and understand this good news that has eternal implications. You see, whenever you spend time caring for an abuse victim and walking with them through their suffering, then they're a lot more likely to hear you when you say Jesus came to forgive sin and to deliver us from it. You see, when when you care for the needs of a homeless person on the side of the street who hasn't eaten in days and you bring them a meal And then you sit down with him, and you say, here, I wanted to do this because Jesus loves you, but I want to tell you something as well. There is a God who cares for you. There is a God who sent his son to die for you, that this wouldn't be the end, that you would have eternal life in him if you would turn from sin and trust in him and follow after him. You see, friends, these kinds of ministry are not contrary to one another. They are complementary. 
And Jesus models this for us better than anyone. And so, yes, the church is about making disciples. This is what we are to be about. And if we lose sight of that, we have made a grievous error and a terrible mistake that has eternal consequences for unknown amounts of people. But we've also made a mistake if we don't understand that we need to care for the suffering and hurting among us. And that doing that can actually be a platform from which they might hear the gospel and turn from sin and trust in Jesus and be saved. Making disciples is what the church is to be about, friends. So how is this mission accomplished? Here's what Jesus says. He gives this commission that they're to be about making disciples of all nations. And he says, he says three things that I want you to notice. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I'm with you always. So there's three things I want you to see about how we accomplish this mission. We go, we baptize, and we teach. And so Jesus says this is how the Great Commission is accomplished. First, we have to talk about going. And so going involves actually taking the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere that we go. It means that you are an ambassador for God, as Paul says, a minister of reconciliation. You've been given a ministry, Christian. Pastors aren't the only ones who have been given a ministry. You and I, we all have a ministry of reconciliation. We're called to call people to turn from sin and be reconciled to God, where they can find true and lasting hope and joy. And so we take the good news of Jesus Christ with us everywhere that we go. In the Old Testament, Israel was to be this beacon of light for the nations. They were to, be, they were to come to, to Israel to find hope and healing and redemption. And then in the New Testament, it's kind of this, it flips it on its head a little bit, where the people of God are no longer just to be in one place for the nations to kind of be attracted to for light and hope and healing. Instead, they are to be lights to the world, and they are to go to the nations, it involves us getting up. It involves us doing something. Friends, if we think that we can be disciples of Jesus Christ while sitting comfortably at home and never sharing the gospel with anybody, we're, we're fools. The first way that the Great Commission is accomplished, the way that we obey Jesus' mission for us, is to go. And so, for some of us, going is going to begin right where we're at. Sometimes, sometimes going doesn't mean that you, you pack up all your things and you live in a third world country. Sometimes going means getting up, picking up your Bible, and reading it together with your family, and making disciples at home. Sometimes it means, it means at work, sharing the gospel with a coworker, or if God gives you the courage, your boss. Sometimes the start of the Great Commission begins where we're at. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus 
talks about the, these three areas in which his mission is going to be accomplished. He says, he, he tells his disciples that it'll be accomplished in Jerusalem, which is where they were at. And then he says, in all Judea and Samaria, which is where, you know, maybe they didn't even want to start going. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. So the Great Commission starts where you're at. It starts with obeying Jesus now, here. Whether you're a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or an employee or a single Christian that is building friendships in strategic areas and ways. The Great Commission starts with where God has placed you and taking the good news of Jesus with you wherever he's placed you. And then it involves going to kind of the Judea and Samaria. It's a little bit out of our comfort zone. It's away from home a little ways. And, and it involves taking it to different kinds of peoples. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, in case you didn't know that. They were different than them, and, and, and they kind of viewed them as, as almost half-breeds that corrupted God's people. And, and, and in Acts, we read this beautiful picture of, of how the disciples are seeing the good news of Jesus Christ expand out from the people of Israel and go to the nations around them and to different people groups who were different than them, who looked different than them, who acted different than them. And Jesus is saving all kinds of people. And this is the beautiful thing about the church, friends, is that one day we are going to be worshiping around the throne a Middle Eastern man who was risen from the grave. Jesus isn't white. In case that was news. He's going to look different than some of us. It's going to be a beautiful thing because we're going to look around us and we're going to see that this Jesus has brought together people who on earth had no earthly reason to be together. They looked different. They talked different. They made different amounts of money. They had different levels of education. And it, none of that is going to matter. And it shouldn't, shouldn't matter for us now. Because Jesus brings the nations of the earth together. And he's creating a people that is diverse and beautiful. And so uh, being about the Great Commission involves taking the gospel to areas that you normally wouldn't spend time in. That might be a little uncomfortable for you. It involves taking the gospel not just to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Involves doing ministry with and amongst different kinds of peoples. And it involves going to the nations with the good news. So in a few weeks, you know, Ken's about to go to Kenya and, and train pastors there. Some of you have been able to go to Africa multiple times. Some of you have been able to go to Haiti or another area of the world where maybe the gospel hasn't been as, as fully present as, as you've seen it at home. And maybe, maybe some of us, God will call us to go to places where the gospel has not yet been, where it's not been proclaimed at all, where people don't know the name of Jesus and have never heard it. I told that story about David Platt walking through the Himalayas and what broke his heart most. 
as he saw all this physical suffering around him, was that when he would ask somebody about Jesus, they would say, who's that? They never heard his name. Friends, you and I have been given the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, and we've been called to go throughout the world sharing this good news, and for us to simply sit at home and do nothing is awful. And, and maybe this task just seems too, too big for us. Maybe we look at what Jesus is asking of, of us here and we say, how could we actually do this? I'm afraid to talk to my family members about my faith, let alone going to the nations. You see what Jesus says at the end here? First, he, he begins by telling them that he has all authority, which means he can accomplish this in us and through us. And he ends by saying this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus is with us on his mission. You want to know where the best place for you to be is? It's following Jesus and obeying his commands. It's the safest place for you to be in, and not because you won't ever have danger going to a country where the good news is not celebrated, but because you're in God's will, the one who holds all authority and the one who is present with us. So friends, this ought to give us courage to share the gospel with our family members who don't want to hear it. This ought to give us courage to go to the West End of Louisville and do ministry that might be different than something you've experienced before. This ought to give us courage to go overseas with the gospel and proclaim it to people who have never heard and risk our lives to do so. Friends, this is the mission of the church, that we go throughout the world making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And so I won't talk about baptism because we spent a week on that, but it's a public declaration that you belong to Jesus, that you're following him. So he says that's part of discipleship. Then he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded, which means we ought to not just make converts, friends, but disciples. Our, our task is not just to share the gospel with somebody one time and then pray that they'd be saved. Our task is to show people and help them understand how all of God's word applies to all of life, how we can be disciples of Jesus in every arena whether it's your job and employment, your career, or your home, your marriage, with your friends, with your family members at family reunions coming up in the holidays. I mean, one of the diff most difficult places to be a disciple is then, right? There's all sorts of strife in our families. See, friends, we, we learn how to apply all of God's word to all of life. That's what it means to be discipled. And that means you and I, we need to make disciples, but we need to keep growing as disciples. So would you pray with me? King Jesus, we come before you humbly knowing that we cannot accomplish this task without you.
You've given us a ministry. You've given us a mission. You have called us to be about making disciples. And as we think about the vast needs, both spiritually and physically, in our world, God, sometimes we're overwhelmed. Sometimes we don't know the first step to take or the way forward. Sometimes we're unsure of how to have a conversation that needs to happen for someone's spiritual good. Sometimes we're unsure how to meet needs around us and how to, how to use that to make disciples. So God, would you help us? Jesus, you have all authority and you are always with us. And so God, we rejoice in that now. God, we ask that you would help your church to be about your mission of making disciples. That one day we might worship with peoples from all the nations of the earth around your throne, celebrating your goodness and your mercy and your grace. So God, we do that now, looking forward to the day when we do it with the entirety of your church. And we ask that you would continue to build your church, Jesus, for your glory and our good. Amen.